Coming up today, we explain why the crypto world may be crumbling and look at the flaws in the European Union's new plan to crack down on child sexual abuse images. You're listening to The Wired Podcast, your essential weekly guide to all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Matt Burgess. Hello. Amit Kotwala. Hello. And Jan Volpicelli. Hi. This was the week when Google announced a bunch of new hardware and software updates at its annual I.O. conference. Amongst them was the first Pixel Watch and Pixel Tablet. On the software side, the firm debuted new features coming to its voice assistant that will help it understand and respond to queries more naturally. It was also the week when the EU, the UK and the US officially blamed Russia's military for hacking a satellite system at the start of its war with Ukraine. Hours before the invasion, Russian military hackers caused outages on the satellite internet system owned by Viasat. It was the week when Elon Musk said he would unblock Trump's Twitter account. Speaking at an FT event, Musk said that while he is in favor of suspending or, uh, accounts or deleting specific tweets, he opposes lifelong bans like the one on the former US President Donald Trump. And finally, this was the week when EA Sports announced it would stop making football games under the FIFA banner after the, its contract with the sports governing body came to an end. FIFA 23 will be the last in the series, with the game to be renamed EA Sports FC from next year onwards. Not to dwell for too long on FIFA, Amit, but it seems that everybody loses from this, right? So World Football's governing body, which doesn't have a glowing reputation, has has lost something that a lot of people knew it for and loved it for. And EA has lost one of the most powerful video game franchise names in the world. Yeah, it all seems to be about money. I think FIFA felt that they weren't getting paid enough for the rights. EA felt they were paying FIFA too much. And EA also seemed to think that they can exercise a bit more freedom without having to operate under the FIFA umbrella, which is a really, really chilling prospect if you look at EA's track record of kind of in-game purchases and loot boxes and things like that. When FIFA, the organisation, is the thing that's reigning in your worst excesses, then that's a real, a real red flag. Yeah, and the name isn't great, right? EA Sports FC is, I mean, it does what it says. It says what it does on the tin or whatever the phrase is. Yeah, you can't really picture a kid saying to another kid, you know, fancy a game of EA Sports FC later. It doesn't really roll off the tongue. But I suspect we'll be in a situation where this will be the only football game in town, really. So perhaps it won't impact their sales too much. And people will still call it FIFA, just as people still call Alphabet Google. And people still call Football Manager Championship Manager. People or Amit Katwala. Uh, yeah. Yes. <laughs> what have we learned this week? Matt Burgess. I've gone for a cop-out one this week where I have uh, learned something that I'm going to ask you to guess. Um, so the thing that I learned is the tube station on the London Underground, which has the most platforms. Um, so would anybody like to take a guess at what that station is? And as an added clue, I will give you the, uh, the, the number of platforms. That doesn't really help, but it's 10 platforms. Amit. Uh, I think it might be King's Cross, just because of the number of lines that go through that station. This was also going to be my guess, but to say another station, I will say Bank. Amit. Uh, Jan, sorry. And the other one, yeah. Uh, 
I would just go for Paddington, just for the sake of it, really. Okay, Paddington's probably geographically the closest, uh, I would say, but it's not the right answer either. It's uh, Baker Street, uh, which has got mm. 10 different platforms uh, and it has four different lines that come through it. So it's got the Bakerloo, the Circle and the Hammersmith City, uh, the Jubilee and the Metropolitan. So it's the station at which lots of people who want to go and see Sherlock Holmes get hopelessly lost trying to escape its labyrinthian tunnels. Well, very good, Matt Burgess. Thank you for your fact. Amit, what did you learn this week? Uh, I learned that we blink less when we're looking at screens. So on average, the number of blinks per minute drops from 20 to around a third of that when we're focusing on a computer screen or a smartphone screen. There's, there's been a, a recent trend in your facts, Amit. All yes. of them are s- somewhat related to eyes. Can we expect more eye-related facts in the coming weeks? Yes, you can. When everything, uh, for, for an upcoming piece I'm working on, when everything you read is about eyes, you tend to discover a lot of eye-related facts. I guess uh, please expect more, more eye content from me in future. I very much look forward to it. Um, we're going to move the one of the emails that we got this week to the top of the show rather than the bottom because it relates to Elon Musk. Last week we asked what people would do if they were Elon Musk and had just taken control of Twitter. Barry from London, who writes in quite often, hello Barry, got in touch to say that he'd charge one penny per tweet and donate the money to good causes. I mean, it's it's a nice idea, isn't it? But I'm not sure if Elon Musk is thinking along the same lines of donating money made through Twitter to good causes, especially as some of the presentations that he's given to investors suggest that he's going to do some potentially questionable things to help try and make Twitter more profitable. But we'll see, won't we? Our first story this week is about a new European Union proposal to scan all of your WhatsApp photos, iMessage texts and Snapchat videos to check for child sexual abuse material. The plan's expert warns may undermine the end-to-end encryption systems that protect billions of messages sent every day and hamper people's online privacy. Matt Burgess, you've been looking into this whole mess. What's going on? Yeah, so this week, the European Commission announced a long-awaited new draft of a law which is aimed at tackling the huge volumes of child sexual abuse material, which is also known as CSAM, uh, that is uploaded to the web each year. The proposed law creates a new EU centre to deal with child abuse content and introduces obligations for tech companies to detect, report, block or remove CSAM from their platforms. Um, We know that uh, child sexual abuse material is a huge online problem with millions of photos and videos being detected online and shared between criminals every single year. Uh, And this new law announced by the Europe's Commissioner for Home Affairs, Ilva Johansson, says that tech companies have failed to voluntarily remove abusive content and um, the move has been welcomed by child protection and safety groups. And we've sort of been here before a bunch of times, right? There have been proposals, albeit less ambitious, to scan messages for signs of child sexual abuse for years. So what's different with what the EU is now proposing? And what does all of this mean? So if this law is passed, it will be the first time in Europe that there has been a law that will put um, specific obligations on tech companies to uh, do more to remove child sexual abuse material from their networks. So the legislation would require tech companies to conduct risk assessments for their services to assess the level of CSAM that's already on their platforms and their existing prevention measures that they have in place to uh, try and remove and detect this. And then, if necessary, regulators or courts could then issue detection orders to tech companies um, that would say that they must start installing and operating specific 
specific technologies to detect CSAM uh, proactively on their platforms. These detection orders would be issued for a specific period of time, so maybe a year or six months. Um, that's not fully laid out in the law at this stage, but it's meant to be uh, a safeguard that's in place to stop uh, everybody having to scan at all times. Um, the draft legislation doesn't actually say what specific technologies must be installed by tech companies or how they will operate. Um, these will be vetted by the new EU centre, uh, which is set up for handling and tackling child sexual abuse material. We'll get on to the technical side later but let's just rewind a little bit and understand help people understand how big this problem is so how much child sexual abuse material is that out there and how are we dealing with it at the moment and why in the eu's eyes are the current techniques falling short so we do know that there are huge volumes of child sexual abuse material online and being found at the moment um the uh, there is a non-profit organization in the US, which uh, by law, US tech companies have to report any uh, CSAM they find to the body. And um, this body uh, last year had around 30 million pieces of uh, 30 million individual reports uh, of child sexual abuse uh, sent to it by technology companies. Um, so there is a huge volume of this uh, horrific content that is out there online. And really, we don't actually know the full scale of the problem, but we know that that it has been getting worse and more and more is being detected. Um, and there is certainly a lot more that technology companies can do to remove uh, CSAM uh, online and from their platforms. In the past, tech companies have been pretty terrible at removing this kind of horrific material. They have improved, but it's not equal and some companies have uh, better measures in place than other companies. Um, at the moment, tech companies find child sexual abuse material online in a number of different ways um, and the amount is increasing as they get better at detecting and, re and reporting abuse. Um, so the main way that it sort of happens at the moment is for duplicates of uh, specific abuse videos or photographs. Um, so there's a, a hashing system that exists. Um, and essentially, when a piece of uh, CSAM is found online and verified by a human, it is given a hash, a, a sort of digital fingerprint that can then uh, going forward be this fingerprint can be checked against other images that are being uploaded online so essentially sort of a way of compa comparing the images just using sort of the uh, the sort of pixels and stuff within them without understanding fully um the the without tech companies having to look at the images so basically there is a database of known images that can be uh, sort of stuff that's already being uploaded to the web can be checked against this so you can find quite easily uh, images that we already know about and videos that we already know are abusive to stop them uh, from getting online and more than 200 companies from google to apple to uh, lots of all the big players use microsoft's photo dna hashing system to scan millions of images and files that are being shared online at this second so what you're talking about there is I'm not sure if this is quite the right term but it's it's passive detection what the EU is asking technology companies to introduce is proactive detection, proactive scanning. And the EU is asking that this be rolled out on really quite a broad scale. But is it right to say that the technology that the EU wants to roll out will be better at detecting this sort of stuff? Is it the right kind of approach to introduce this proactive rather than passive form of scanning? 
Yeah, so it's at the moment the the proposals that have been put out there involve both of this uh looking for child sexual abuse material that is known that sort of like passive uh, approach as you said so uh the, those hashing systems will if you uh that are already being used if you are sending messages for instance on facebook messenger uh, and are based in the us then like hashes will already be looked at uh try to work out if uh, the images you're sending on facebook messenger uh, are containing child sexual abuse material so that type of thing is already in place uh, by a lot of companies around the world but this new proposal also goes further by saying that it wants to uh, make tech companies better find new uh, previously undetected child sexual abuse material and for that they may have to use ai or other types of uh, technologies to be able to find new material that hasn't been found before um so it goes beyond what we've seen already but also does include essentially making uh, if a detection order is issued making companies use this type of um this type of hashing system that's already there and making them do it on a sort of mandatory basis if they, they're issued with a detection order. Um, so it, it's essentially making it lawful that uh, companies do this process that many of them sort of already do in, in some cases, but also sweeping up other, other, other companies that aren't already doing this. And, and really, um, that's sort of like, yeah, expanding upon what we've seen in the past. And there's at least one major technology firm that's already using a technical system to hunt down previously unseen CSAM, and that's Google. We don't know a great deal about its system, how widely it's implemented, but this is, to a degree, technically possible, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, On the state of things where you can have access to what people are sending and see um, what is being uploaded, um, when the content... uh, tech companies have access and ability to see, uh, yeah, communications or photos or things like that, then they can uh, use technologies in place to detect potential child sexual abuse material. Yeah, we can all agree that child sexual abuse is abhorrent, right? And if we can stop people from sharing it online, we should. So on the face of it, what the EU is proposing seems very sensible, but it's really not as simple as that, is it? No, it's not. So to do this hashing that we're talking about, systems need to have access to messages and files that people are sending, which is not possible when end-to-end encryption is in place. Um, The European proposal to scan people's messages has been met with frustration from civil rights groups and security experts who say uh, the proposals are likely to undermine the end-to-end encryption that has become the default on many messaging apps such as iMessage, WhatsApp or Signal. And as a reminder, end-to-end encryption means that only the sender and the receiver can see the message content. So, James, if I were sending you a text message on WhatsApp or Signal or any platform that is end-to-end encrypted, the company that owns that platform couldn't see the contents of the messages. So Facebook can't snoop on your WhatsApp messages because technically it doesn't have access to them. And that's where this new proposal from uh, the EU sort of runs into um, challenges, really, because uh, technology companies have put in place end-to-end encryption to protect people's privacy, to make sure the system, their systems are more secure. Um, but at the same time, they don't have access to messages that people are sending. So they can't run this type of scanning um, on those messages that are being sent. So there is this fundamental sort of like technological divide between uh, the reality of what can be done and the law that's in place. And we've already started to see tech companies come out and say that this uh, proposal does 
potentially undermine end-to-end encryption that's already on our platform. So WhatsApp's head, uh, Will Kafkart, uh, tweeted uh, when the news was announced that the proposal would force companies to scan every person's messages and put EU citizens' privacy and security at risk because it would be undermining end-to-end encryption. And essentially any system that weakens end-to-end encryption in some way could be abused or expanded uh, to look for other types of content, researchers say. There's a lot of documentation that comes with this proposal and you've been unlucky enough to have to dig through all of it for the story that you worked on this week. But one fairly glaring oversight at this stage is how technically such a system might work. In fact, you could argue that what the EU is proposing is actually technically impossible, which might be why they're punting the responsibility for working the problem out onto technology companies like Apple and Meta. Yeah, so the EU hasn't specifically said how this should be done technically and within the law that sort of makes sense really because they wouldn't want to prescriptively write something into a piece of legislation that then could change because technology systems change. But there could also be that missing element because it's very hard to do this and people don't necessarily know how to do this. So for years, uh, there have been debates around sort of uh, law enforcement access to end-to-end encrypted messages and, and uh, that because if police, uh, police and uh, investigating authorities can't get access to messages, it could hamper their investigations. And there have been many sort of like suggestions from politicians that end-to-end encryption should be uh, potentially weakened or uh, backdoors introduced. So uh, in exceptional circumstances, law enforcement can get access to uh, people's content. Um, the, the argument that is against that is if you introduce a backdoor for one uh, purpose, then it can be used for any other purpose. So if you've got one government that decides to... Uh, demand a backdoor and then a technology company did this, that would essentially weaken the end-to-end encryption for everybody across the entire world. So the law at the moment uh, that's being proposed says that the provider of the technology system should acquire, install and operate technologies made by available by the EU centre but doesn't outline what they are. Um, and the European Commission says this isn't actually a law about encryption. They're only focused on uh, removing child sexual abuse material. Um, so really, I think that uh, uh, you've got this sort of like technical clashing of encryption which is essentially mathematics uh, with what lawmakers are saying should be done and we're getting to a stage where technologists are saying that actually this is uh, potentially impossible at the moment or would weaken privacy and security for millions of people around the world if europe is saying do this and security experts and technologists are saying it can't be done then we're back to where we started right and back to where we've been on this issue for years. So having looked at this issue for years as a journalist, what do you think progress looks like and what might happen next now that the EU has laid down this proposal? So it's going to be a a big controversial and emotive issue at a lawmaking level for the next few months. Um, No technology platform or anybody uh, in the world wants uh, child sexual abuse material to be on their systems or to be uh, being created and shared and everybody in this uh, space, whether they come from a law perspective, a law enforcement perspective, a technology perspective, is obviously very against the sharing creation of this uh, material. Um, But these debates are quite often emotive because of the um, very uh, obviously horrific nature of the content and the issue. And 
it can mean that some of these debates potentially get dumbed down quite a lot or uh, are put into very black and white pictures. Um, increasingly, researchers and tech co companies have been focusing on safety tools that can exist alongside end-to-end -end encryption. So proposals include using metadata from encrypted messages, the who, what, why, uh, the who, what, and why of the messages, not the content themselves, the information about the messages. So when something was sent or who it was sent to, to analyze people's behavior and potentially spot criminality. Uh, and one recent report, uh, which was produced by the uh, Business for Social Responsibility Organization, which was commissioned to do so by Meta, which obviously has uh, a position on this, uh, found that end-to-end -end encryption is an overwhelmingly positive force for upholding people's human rights. And it suggested sort of 45 recommendations for how encryption and safety can go together uh, and not involve access to people's communications. Um, it concluded saying that there's a lot that can be done without access to messages, but whether that is enough for politicians uh, is something that it doesn't seem like at the moment. So Meta has commissioned a piece of research that puts forward Meta's point of view. And I'm not sure I entirely agree with this line of thought, but it is one that you hear quite often when this topic is debated is there an extent to which this is trying to find a technical solution to a societal problem or is it not as simple as that so i think that it's it's just not simple in in any way really um it's obviously a very difficult and technical issue when you're involving technology and the end-to-end -end encryption side of things as well. Um, and the fact is that criminals and abusers do exist and will use whatever tools they can to share uh, child sexual abuse material. From the people that I've spoken to over the years on this, there is an element that it is a technical problem. These platforms are being used uh, by criminals to share this type of content. Uh, but like many problems in society, really, it isn't a binary issue. Tech may be able to help as one part of a bigger solution, but it might also not be the only solution that exists and what really needs to happen and sort of civil society groups say that this might not have been the case during the EU's drafting of this proposal is that lawmakers, law enforcement, civil society, technologists, child protection groups and many other people with uh, an interest in trying to tackle this problem should come together and look at what the best approaches are uh, and basically that the groups can't exist in silos and they need to talk to each other and the way that that's the way that you get to sort of practical answers that do their best to make sure enough or all children are protected and less at risk um, without also compromising other other principles such as privacy and security uh, that people have uh, in the rest of society. So it's one of these that there is not an easy answer to in any way. And um, the, I think the best thing that people in this space can do is, is talk to each other more and, and get around the same table and, and discuss all these things and come up with the best solution that respects as many different areas of society as we as we can. And at the very least, even with all of the criticisms that it's faced this week, the EU doing this will force, hopefully, different stakeholders to get down, to, to sit down around a table and try and come up with new solutions to tackle this problem. It's a story that we've been reporting on for, for years at Wired. We'll continue to do so over the coming months as things develop, I imagine, rather quite quickly. We'll include a link to Matt's story in the show notes and Morgan Meeker is also working on a follow-up story which will be live on Wired.com by the time this podcast is published. For our second story this week, Jan has been looking into the collapse of the cryptocurrency Terra, which plunged in value overnight. 
Jan, first question for the crypto novices, what is Terra? Well, I mean, what, this is one of those stories in which I, I tend to think of a finance story as of a kind of performance art story. But anyway, so Terra, also known as Terra Luna, actually, it is a stablecoin. Um, so a stablecoin is a type of cryptocurrency whose value is supposed to remain steady over time. So we all know, even you, Amit, I suppose, you know that uh, Bitcoin's value, Bitcoin's price, uh, oscillates a lot, changes a lot, fluctuates a lot over time. And, and that's not good uh, if, I mean, in general, for, for people who want to uh, have a kind of, uh, some kind of security, uh, and for speculators, even about in general, essentially, if you want to uh, be a bit more uh, safe and secure in your crypto investment, if there's such a thing, you want something that remains stable over time. And that's what stable coins are for. But most stable coins have some kind of asset backing their stability. So, um, for instance, if you create a stablecoin whose price is supposed to be pegged to the US dollar, you might want to have a, um, a safe somewhere stashed with dollars, each $1 for each stablecoin you issue. But Terra is different. Terra Luna is what we call an algorithmic stablecoin. So there is no asset backing it, no collateral backing it. It's just code. So there is um, an ecosystem where there are various assets, and these assets are architected, are structured in such a way that their value is supposed to remain constant uh, in the face of different levels of demand. Uh, I understand it's pretty hard, we'll get more into the details later, but essentially think about it as a, co a, a coin, a cryptocurrency whose stable value is guaranteed only by code, and the marshalling of users' behaviors by incentives. It is a collective delusion. Um, but then again, I mean, if, if you ask a lot of crypto bros, they will tell you that all money is collective delusion. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so it's, it's stability backed by algorithms. Yeah, the idea of collective delusion, I think, is one that comes up a lot when I think about and read about crypto. So the purpose of stablecoins, I guess, was to try and combine the best bits of fiat currencies like the pound and the dollar with the freedom, some of the freedom offered by things like Bitcoin. So you get this flexibility and this uh, transparency or lack of transparency, depending on what your goal was with crypto, um, without the wild swings in value that other cryptocurrencies experience. Um, and Terra, I guess, seemed like an elegant solution to this problem. So can you tell us a bit more about how this algorithm actually worked, how it balanced these collective behaviours and incentives to make sure that the value stayed close to $1. Yes. I will have to cut a lot of corners in order to make it intelligible to you and most listeners. But So, it is pretty complex, but it's also pretty dumb. Um, imagine, posit a, a blockchain, which is a decentralised ledger on which cryptocurrencies exist, and call it the Terra blockchain. So, the, on this blockchain, there are various kinds of assets. Let, just, let's just look at the two main assets involved in today's, I mean, this week's actually collapse. Uh, the so-called UST, uh, which stands for US Terra, or which, whose value is theoretically $1. Let's call it Terra just for 
for the sake of simplicity. And Luna. So as I said, Terra is a kind of cryptocurrency whose value is supposed to always be uh, pegged to the US dollar. And while Luna is another kind of asset which can be used on the blockchain, the Terra blockchain to receive some kind of rewards, some kind of so-called yield, which is more or less like interest, but whose value uh, is not fixed, it fluctuates, and it's mostly determined on uh, demand and supply on environments that are external to the blockchain itself. So cryptocurrency exchanges and so forth, right? So the price just changes with the markets. So what happens? How does Terra's value remain stable? Uh, on Terra, on Terra blockchain, the price of Terra is guaranteed to remain always at one dollar, which means if you have a Luna whose value is one dollar, you can always exchange one Terra for a Luna and one Luna for a Terra, and that's pretty simple. What happens though if people outside of the Terra ecosystem start? Uh, dumping a lot of UST, a lot of Terra, which theoretically should make the value of Terra go down. What happens is that the incentives, the, the structure of the uh, blockchain should convince people to buy a lot of Terra at a lower price in order to then go on the Terra blockchain and buy Luna at a discounted price, essentially, because Luna is still dollar, I mean, Terra dollar denominated, right? So if you have a Terra that on other exchanges is sold at 20 cents, the idea is that you would want to take advantage of the opportunity, buy a lot of Terra, go back to the Terra blockchain, buy a lot of Luna, and then reap whatever benefits Luna gives you. Uh, and that over time should stabilize the price because of course people will want to buy a lot of Terra and that over time the peg is back. Of course, that works in the other way too, right? So if the price of Terra, if there's too much demand for Terra and the, the price for Terra goes over $1, um, the idea is that at that point, you would sell the Terra because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't make sense to keep it, right? And so over time, uh, you will bring, it, bring, bring the price down. So these are the kind of incentives. I'm sure I cut a lot of corners here, but it is... It, it is more or less as it worked. It, it just harnesses instincts. Uh, of course, there was a foundation uh, set up by the creators of the Terra protocol, which kind of played a role in stabilizing the peg, right? So uh, we will say more about it later, but it wasn't like totally left to the animal spirits of users. Yeah, that's what makes it different, I guess, because you can always cash out your, you can always cash out within the Terra blockchain for $1 that, that combined with an algorithm that I guess changed the weight relationship between Terra and Luna enabled this stable coin to always remain or hover around one dollar and that worked for a while. So Yeah, just until, one thing I didn't I guess say a couple of days ago. Yeah. Essential yeah, uh, one thing I didn't say it's important though that of course uh, the, the algorithms themselves uh change the price of Luna on the um, Terra blockchain uh using various uh proxies like various uh, prices on other exchanges. What has changed? Uh, really, not much has changed per se in the in the algorithm, right? The algorithm was always kind of flowed because one thing that a lot of scholars will tell you is that 
in order for this model, this kind of algorithmic stablecoin model to work, there must be some kind of stable, constant demand for these assets. Because if nobody cares about Luna, for instance, or nobody cares about Terra, and people just don't want it, they will just disregard incentives. So the only way this works is if there is constant, steady demand for these assets, which is rarely the case. Um, but what triggered this uh, is, I mean, I say it's two things, right? The first thing is the general turmoil in crypto markets. So crypto markets have been crashing. Uh, Bitcoin's price today stands at $27,000, which is much lower than it was just six months ago, certainly one year ago. Uh, and even, I mean, you might argue that the turmoil is engulfing the whole financial sector, but certainly crypto is crashing. And that's one component of the panic. But what triggered this is actually a deliberate attack. Someone has dubbed it a George Soros attack. Not because George Soros is involved. I don't want to uh, kind of uh, provoke any of the uh, usual conspiracy theorists and QAnonists who hate George Soros, but no, simply because uh, the George Soros, the philanthropist and financier, did something similar with the British pound and the Italian lira uh, in the 90s. So what does it mean? Actually, someone bought uh, a whole bunch of uh, UST, Terra, pegged to the dollar, and dumped them in a, in a ploy to short, not really Terra itself, but Bitcoin. Uh, why? Because as we said, the foundation has a lot of, it's playing a big role in stabilizing the price. And the foundation back in the Terra protocol has a lot of reserves in Bitcoin, which it was supposed to use if the peg was uh, fluctuating too much. So by, by dumping billions in Terra, this attacker who's identity we don't know, there are a lot of speculations online, uh, prompted the foundation to spend its own billions of bitcoins and making bitcoin's price fall further and that was the short bet uh, which netted again, I suppose, netted some kind of profit to the attack who took George Soros, um, a leaf out of George Soros' book in a way. Uh, so that happened last week, actually over the, the weekend, I think. But uh, the result is, I mean, uh, devastating. 98% uh, of the ecosystem's value has, has been pulverized. I think one Terra, which one, year, one week ago was uh, worth a dollar, is now around $50. Uh, cents. Luna itself, which last week was worth $80 per unit, now is worth... 0.13 dollars. Uh, so a lot, billions of dollars in value have been, have been just vaporized overnight. Yeah, so the, the question I'm struggling with is, there's, there's all these stories online about people losing, you know, their life savings and things like that because they put it into terror. And the question I'm struggling with is, what's the point? Like, why were people putting all their money into terror and other stable coins in the first place? What did they do? Yeah, well, as I kind of gesture to us, maybe goofily at the beginning, uh, the idea is that if you are someone who doubles in crypto, uh, and you are, but you are, you are someone who also cares about not losing too much money, which is ironic now, of course, uh, you might want to have some kind of asset where you can put your, you can lock in your gains uh, without 
I mean, be, because it's stable, so there's no uh, price fluctuation, not no significant price fluctuation. Of course, the alternative would be to uh, take your profits out by converting the crypto into fiat money, so actual dollars, going to a crypto exchange and getting dollars from, for your crypto. But that is I mean, not very complicated, but can be a bit costly. There are some fees and also there are tax uh, questions. So you might not want to do it. You might just want to park your uh, profits or your savings in stablecoin uh, between one trading spree and another. Um, and that's why people use stablecoins. Why people use Terra? Uh, I mean, it's a different kind of question. One answer might be that Terra is the purest form of crypto asset, of crypto stablecoin, because it is even, even if it is pegged to the dollar, even if its price is theoretically stable, uh, it really incarnates the crypto ideal of being totally untethered from the financial system. So it's not backed by actual dollars, it's not backed by any collateral, it is full independent. It is code becoming value. So that's very noble. There's no real risk because it's, it's not even subject theoretically to the whims of the Fed, Federal Reserve. What if the Federal Reserve declared the dollars are illegal and so your reserve is worthless now? I mean, it won't happen, but what I'm saying is essentially this is totally detached. Uh, but I suspect, and actually most people will suggest, that this is not um, a case of just people trying to make a point by investing in Terra. What happens is that uh, a big part of the Terra saga, the Terra ecosystem and the Terra saga too, uh, is a protocol, a kind of part of the blockchain called Anchor. Anchor is, uh, think of it as a kind of bank really, or as an investment vehicle, but Essentially, people can put their, could put their terras in Anchor, they could just park it there, or stake it is the technical term, and expect to receive yields, some kind of interest payments in return, up to 20%, which is, I mean, is uh, amazing given by uh, crypto standards. So a lot of people kept, kept buying terra, and the demand was kept up throughout the uh, whole terra saga, just because there was this big, uh, your there. So without Anchor, you don't really get why. There was, there was just a system that was designed to suck in more people. Yeah, so you got this amazing, I guess, system where people bought these stable coins because they were getting a 20% return. But that 20% return was coming from, I guess, other people buying into the system or from the price of Bitcoin going up. So I guess Terra was quite vulnerable to fluctuations, although supposedly it was pegged to the US dollar. It was probably quite vulnerable to fluctuations in the price of Bitcoin and, and vice versa, as we saw by this attack that you described. So I guess... You know, Anchor probably helped inflate terror and help it grow, um, and it made it fall from a higher height. So I guess two questions, really. What is happening now? What are people trying to do uh, to, to save terror? And what does this all mean for the future of crypto in general? Well, uh, I think that the people behind Terra have tried to do what they could initially just by using, deploying the Bitcoin reserves to very little avail. Uh, the, the situation is very bad right now. Uh, even if the founder of Terra, Do Kwan, um, has been uh, promising that he will find a way to bring the ecosystem back, it's not very clear that there is 
there's any chance of that happening. And also, I think that even if he managed to, in some way to bring the peg back, I'm not sure that after these week's events, anyone would want to go anywhere near Terra or any algorithmic stablecoin for that matter. So my, um, my verdict is, is that we're probably seeing the last of Terra. Uh, I'm not sure about crypto. Crypto itself is, can be very different. There are different kinds of stablecoins and stablecoins can be backed by dollars, which is a different kind of problem. Uh, or can be backed by crypto collateral, so one, one stablecoin can be backed by three bitcoins or whatnot. Uh, but uh, they have different problems, which are not as problematic as Terra's were. Yeah, yeah, it's a really interesting time for cryptocurrency. I think we've seen a lot of criticism and a lot of skepticism coming into the market around things like NFTs and, and other things like that. I'd be really interested to hear what listeners uh, think about this. Are they into crypto? Is this something they've invested in, something they've been watching? Do let us know at podcast.wide.co.uk. And there will be a couple of stories on this uh, on wide.com in the next few days. We'll put links in the show notes when we can. Yep, we've uh, in fact dragged Jan away from uh, the depths of the crypto world and reporting a couple of stories for Wired to talk about it on the podcast this week. So um, yeah, do keep an eye out for those on Wired.com over the coming days. As Amit said, podcast at wired.co.uk if you want to get in touch with the show about anything that we talked about this week or if you just want to say hello. We do like to hear from you, so please do email podcast at wired.co.uk. That's it for this week then. Have a good one and we'll be back again same time next week. Thanks for listening as always. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye.